0: Welcome to another episode of Focused on Christ, where we are passionate about exalting Christ and equipping the Church. I'm Mike Crump here with Pastor Nathan Smith, and on today's episode, we're examining the fascinating yet tragic life of Israel's first king, Saul. Uh, Of course, before Saul, there was another man who played a very big part in transitioning the people of Israel from the time of Judges and the chaos that was there into a time of the kings. And uh, his name was Samuel. So, Nathan, why don't we start there? What role did Samuel play in helping this transition?
1: Samuel is almost the new Moses Mm. in that he is a priest, prophet, leader. Of Yeah. He not only formed the functions of a priest, but he did, in fact, judge or not rule over in the sense of a kingship, but he was the leader. Mm. He was the person that people sought after for guidance and for
0: wisdom. Was he a judge, would you say? Like he's kind of in that He He
1: definitely was in the context of a judge. In some ways, theologians look at him as the final judge. Okay. He almost should be the final judge in the book of Judges, but the judge that ushered in the era of kings. Gotcha. He is a transitional figure, and is one who, whose purpose was to steer people back to fidelity in the covenant under God.
0: Mm, okay, and even his story itself of just the the birth that was given uh, to Hannah, the him being raised in the temple, and God calling him verbally, you know, um, in the midst of it all. So it, it really is a, a great story of how God set him apart for this duty. Now, now, one of the things that he is known for is that he anointed the first kings of Israel. Um, and that wasn't a simple thing because, you know, the people had never had a king before. This was a new thing. Um, but the people were demanding a king. They were, they were crying out to him, we want to have a king over us to judge us like all the other nations. And uh, why is this such a big thing for them? I mean, why, why are they longing for this king?
1: Uh, Well, ultimately, it's another act of rebellion. They don't want to be under the headship of God. And it's also important to acknowledge that it wasn't that they didn't—their sin against God was not that they wanted a king. Okay. Their sin against God was that they wanted a king, crucial statement, like the other Mm. nations. They knew what kings looked like. They knew what kings were supposed to do according to the standards of the world. Mm. And they looked at the nations around them and we say, we want to be like them. We don't want to be like, we don't want to be different. We don't want to be unique. We want to be like the other nations. We want someone who will speak on our behalf. And God's intent all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant Mm -hmm. was always that there were going to be Kings that came out of, but Kings that ruled under the law. Mm. They were not above the law. They did not write the law fiat. They did not they were, they were not many gods or divine figures like even later on in history yeah. we see, but they were rulers but under the ruler. The fact that they wanted a king like the other nations shows that they really didn't want God in
0: mm. there as their head. Do you think part of that cry for a king was because in the chaos of the judges and everything that had been happening, you know, they just— the the human response is we need somebody to take control because things are just chaotic. And it's almost similar to what I see even in our day and age with political power, right? Mm -hmm. It's like our world is in chaos, we need a political figure to stand in the gap to help us. And so it was almost kind of like a human answer to something more divinely that needed to happen.
1: And I think that response is actually not a bad response in that we see the chaos, and they see the chaos, Mm -hmm. and they want peace. They want stability. They want someone who's actually going to make a difference over the the anarchy that they see in society. The problem is they wanted an answer according to the world's standards, not according to God's standards. And often, even today, we do the exact same thing. Oh, yes. We want the answer according to the world's standards, according to how the world defines it.
0: Yeah, that is always the danger. And so we see Samuel, he comes uh, finally to the point where he's even grieving over this this process of, of the king. Um, and, uh, and God does tell him, you know, they haven't rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me. So there we see, as you are saying, just that heart against the Lord, even though wanting a king isn't a bad thing. But the means or the purpose behind it, a heart that is far from God, is there.
1: I do think Samuel, by the way, in that, I think he must have been struggling with a little bit of, I failed.
0: Mm. Because
1: the fact that God said, it's not you, Samuel, it's me. I think that Samuel was grieving like, I was given this charge of God, Mm. and I failed. I have not been a good leader. There's something that I didn't do good enough, and the people are rebelling against God. It's my fault. And God is graciously coming to Samuel and saying, Samuel... It's not you. Mm. It's against me that they have rebelled. Mm. It's not that you failed. It's that the people want something other than God. Mm. And that's why they're rejecting you because you're a man of God. Yeah, And that's actually a very encouraging and helpful distinction. Yeah, That even this man of God has succumbed to depression, discouragement, and the I failed. But God is saying, no, Yeah, it's not you. It's them. Their own hearts of rebellion.
0: And that is, I know we're spending a little bit of time here, but I think it, it, that is such a good distinction because even in our day and age, to walk in obedience to Christ, you're going to get backlash from the world and to not see it as they are against you, but that they are against Christ. And therefore, as a as someone who is following him and speaking of him, that is a normal place to be is in opposition to the world.
1: Yes, and we don't want to give them needless reason to be in opposition because of of our own careless sinfulness, (laughs) but to recognize that if you're going to stand on the side of God, people will reject you because they are ultimately rejecting God. And that's where Samuel finds himself. And I think probably a little bit discouraged personally as well.
0: Yeah. So Samuel finally follows through and he goes to anoint the person whom God has said anoint. Now, Saul is just, he's an intriguing figure to me, Mm -hmm. Um, especially as we look at kind of his beginning and how things happened as he's anointed. Um, But we see in 1 Samuel 9 that he was a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. For his shoulders upward he was taller than any of the people. And so we see that he was a man of physical strength, you know, a guy that you would look on and go, yes, this has got to be a king. Mm Mm-hmm. so was the selection of Saul almost giving the people what they wanted? They wanted this figure. They wanted this imposing person, but yet he lacked the character because we do see that come out as Saul progresses as king. There, that's a little speculative. There,
1: there, there are some questions about the way God's providence is working here because we do see him reject Saul and then Mm -hmm. of course ultimately choose David. So was David kind of round two because Saul messed up? And then the question of putting, so we have some providence questions in that what we do know under the providence of God that he did choose Saul and that Saul had a great opportunity that he rejected. Mm-hmm. And the, the point that he was a handsome man and from his shoulders up, he's tall, he's imposing, he's a man's man. Everybody thinks that's what a king should look like. It really highlights the people's heart that they were looking only on external mm-hmm. realities. They did not ask the question, hey, Saul, you're a handsome looking guy, but do you love God? Yeah. I mean, that, that question was never asked. Yeah. And yet later with David, scripture just volunteers that information. Yeah. This is a man who to his very core loves God.
0: Yeah. And I think that is, and we're going to get this to that at our next episode as we look at both characters of Saul and David. But, you know, there's just a distinction there. I mean, even in the call of David or the, the anointing of David, there's like, hey, do not look at the outward because that's not what God looks at. Uh, but here we see just a very clear description of him. And so it's almost like, all right, this is the guy that you, this kind of guy you want, here you go. Um, and so it, it's, it's just fascinating to see He's a
1: tragic figure in yeah. Scripture. He's one of the most tragic figures up there with Judas mm. um, in all of Scripture. Yeah. People ask and say, is Saul in heaven? Well, we'll talk more about that. But the answer is no. There's no affirmation that he was a genuine believer in Yahweh. Saul is the poster child of someone who's been given so much opportunity, Mm. so much blessing, who on the outside is the churchgoer who is going through and going through the motions. Mm -hmm. And even by his proximity to the presence of God, through the presence of God, uh, through his people, God even blesses at times. But ultimately to his heart, he wants his own things. Mm. He is a tragic figure, much like Judas, that had so much opportunity, so much blessing, and yet refused it after his own lusts and desires.
0: Yeah. And that brings us to this kind of anointing. So Samuel, he anoints Saul, and then he kind of sends him on this journey. And this journey is just a colorful kind of journey because we see in chapter 10 of 1 Samuel, uh, Samuel says that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lair before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. And so here we see the Spirit's doing something here. I mean, Saul is prophesying. He's becoming another man. Um, and so, what is actually happening here? How are you supposed to understand the Spirit's work in this instance? Uh,
1: when we look at the whole work of the Holy Spirit, it is very important to pay attention to the context and even the verbiage that is used. Mm-hmm. When we look at the rushing of the Holy Spirit upon Saul, we should not assume that this is a filling of the Spirit like we see in the New Testament that connotes a redemptive identity okay. as a result of relationship with God. Let's back up here for just a moment. Yes. The work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit in Genesis 1 is hovering over the face of the waters. The Holy Spirit is shown throughout the Old Testament as giving breath to life. Mm. Uh, I'm just talking about existence. Yeah, animals, uh, plant life, all of those exist by the ongoing work mm. and intermediary work of the Holy Spirit to breathe life into creation. So the work of the Holy Spirit is not just limited to the salvific work, okay. but as a member of the Trinity is ordering the world, is is breathing out. Visible uh, works of God. Even so, like later on, we see when they build the temple, or, or even earlier on in the, in the tabernacle, the, the Bible says that men were filled with the Holy Spirit to do what? To actually do goldsmithing mm. and silversmithing, yeah, and beautiful works of art. That even the generations of their the generation of of, of creativity from the works of their hands was a fruit of, mm. of the Holy Spirit working through them. So there's lots of different operations of the Spirit. Now, what is the Spirit doing here? He's going to come upon him to empower Saul, not in a salvific way, but in the role of a king, to give him the abilities, the talents, the the empowerment to rule the people Mm. of Israel. And in a certain measure, because of the Holy Spirit's empowering, Saul is successful. Yeah. There are different military aspects mm-hmm. and administrative aspects in which Saul is able to bring order to the chaos that came out of Judges. So we, we need to be careful that we assume that this is a redemptive work and then say, well, only, only the Spirit comes and fills those who are redeemed. Yeah. Yes, that is true, fills. But what it says here is rushes upon Comes upon for the specific empowerment of a task, okay. and that's not any different than what we see in the New Testament that we're filled with the Spirit, but then we are also empowered mm. by the Spirit for specific tasks.
0: That's helpful, uh, helpful mindset to understand because uh, I think that in and on are just crucial differences. Yeah, to to equip for the work, and that's what we see in Saul. And what what's fascinating again, we just He's, he's just this weird dichotomy of a man because here we see him being rushed upon by the Spirit. He's, he's singing, he is prophesying, he's turned into another man, and then later on in that same chapter he is hiding in the baggage <laughs> from his anointing <laughs> as king. And so we see, I mean, it's just this fascinating character that there's almost like, yes, he's been empowered. Yes, he's prophesying. Yes, he's anointed. But yet he's a reluctant, fearful man. And so, you know, what does that teach us about Saul? I mean, as as a man. Well, it shows
1: Saul is not ultimately resting in Yahweh as hmm. his strength. He's resting in his own strength, and instead of appropriating the blessings that the Lord wants to give him, he's resting in his own strength and is fearful and terrified. Mm. And who wouldn't be? Who wouldn't be terrified at this huge task? Even when God said to Joshua in Joshua 1, don't be afraid, don't be dismayed, don't fear. I am with you, Joshua. And what did Joshua do? Okay, on the basis of who Yahweh is, Mm. I'm going to walk into the numerically and militarily superior Canaanites and I'm going to trust God. That showed Joshua's heart. Mm. Now God says to Saul, I'm going to come upon you. I'm going to change you. I'm going to empower you. And instead of Saul going, okay, I'm going to trust Yahweh, even though I feel afraid, he instead runs and hides. It shows his true heart, even in contrast to Joshua. Yeah, We're getting a picture and glimpse that this Saul is not quite aligned with the heart of Yahweh as we, as he appears to be to everybody else,
0: and it shows the significance of faith in Yahweh. Absolutely, is right? that that faith is just a crucial part of walking with Yahweh from Old Testament on until. Are you going to trust me? Are you going to trust me? And um, and we see that as as even now we we walk through some of the character and leadership issues with Saul, we see that a lot of it comes down to a, a lack of faith in God and a lack of faith that God is going to do what he says he's going to do, um, or that Saul may think, oh, I can do this better. Um, so two years after he's anointed, he, he, all, he destroys his future with an unlawful sacrifice before the Lord. Um, why was this such a serious thing that it would cause him to be basically rejected now as king?
1: So one of the things that the kings of the nations often did— was that they blurred the lines between priest and king and would offer sacrifices or even consider themselves special emissaries of God. Mm. And in the, under the law, there were very clear distinctions uh, that you had the priests and that they alone were qualified to be able to offer sacrifice and to be able to intercede mm-hmm. uh, to to God on behalf of man. He is, in essence, in such Arrogance and pride, assuming that he has the qualifications and the right to stand before the presence of God and offer sacrifice. Mm. And that is, frankly, the very heights of pride that Satan himself Mm. was cast down for. That he assumed that he had the right and and the ability to to be God or to assume that level of role. Mm. And God and the law and the priesthood is specifically saying only the qualified, only the person who I stipulate can come before me. And what Saul is doing, even though it's under duress, he is saying, I am qualified in myself, I can go before God on behalf and make sure that everything's taken care of. Mm. On top of that, he's treating God like a deity to be bent to his own will, that God is something to be manipulated for his personal blessing, mm. that God is meant to be manipulated. If I just go through the right motions, yeah. God is, is, is responsible for blessing me. My goodness. Mm. That is what the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel yeah. is that we talk about today. Yeah. You go through the right motions, and you can bend God to your will to get the blessings that you desire, to get the outcome that you desire. That's what Saul did. So he's pretending for qualification. He's blatantly in pride coming before God, trying to manipulate God for mm. his specific outcomes. And God says, this showcases your heart. Mm. And so I am ripping away the blessings because you do not understand me, the law, or my holiness.
0: Mm. So, I mean, it really is a profound blasphemy against God who gives very clear Instructions and yet to disregard them, even if fear is a part of it, it is, it is an, a sign of arrogance. And, and we see that even as we continue with Saul's life uh, the fact that he doesn't kill King Agag, you know, that he willfully chooses to hold on to the precious things that were supposed to be destroyed and instead keeps them. He disregards God's command for his own purposes and then just continues to disrespect God in... Disregards I mean, God's justice. Yep. He wanted
1: to bring justice against Agag, this this evil king. Mm-hmm. So he disregards God's justice. He disregards God's commands. He disregards the blessings that God wants to give him in favor of the riches mm-hmm. that come as a result of the evil king, his camp, his livestock. So he is constantly saying through word and action, I want what the world has to offer, not what God has to offer.
0: Mm. And even being deceived in that, I mean, in that whole thing with Agag and, and uh, 1 Samuel 15, he declares to Samuel, "I I have performed the commandment of the Lord."
1: So he lies to God. Yes. Not not the Samuel's God.
0: No. But he's lying before the Lord. He is Lord. he is lying, and um and again, it just seals his fate as no longer the king. But uh, then he will lose his life in the end. Um, and we see this just continue that Saul. Even with, with David, he, he doesn't go out to fight Goliath. He, he, there's fear that's keeping him from standing in, in the power of God, in the power of Yahweh, and it, but David goes out because he knows what God is able to do. Um, and then Saul again seeks David's life out of jealousy and pettiness. He's
1: constantly afraid of people. Yeah. And it's very important to note that even in the sacrifice, the unlawful sacrifice he gave, when he gave the excuse to Samuel, he said, I had to do it because the people Mm, were going to leave. It's true. He was afraid of people. There's actually a great book I recommend to people all the time. It's when when people are big and God is small.
0: Mm, If you
1: have not read that book, it really exposes the very, very common fear of man that we all have. Yeah. We're afraid of other people. We're afraid of their opinions. We're afraid of their Facebook thumbs down. We're afraid <laughs> of their, their, their tweets. We're afraid of people. Yeah. So we do whatever we must in order to curry the favor of people instead of worrying about pleasing God. Mm. And constantly he's afraid of people. He's afraid of the Philistines. He's constantly running from instead of trusting in God.
0: Amen. So if you were to boil down for just our, our key question for this episode is what went wrong with King Saul? And if you were to boil down, I think we've covered pretty much all of it, but to boil it down, what would be the main issue here?
1: Well, his heart was not right with God. Mm. He did not have a genuine desire for God. Yeah. And when Jesus comes on the scene later and the young man who says who's rich and mm. Jesus says, well, okay, go sell all that you have. And the man went away sorrowful yeah. because he had great wealth. He was not willing to give it up for the sake of following God. What it did was it exposed his heart. And again and again in Saul's life, God's heart is exp- uh, God exposes the heart of Saul so that Saul's is not really about God. Mm. He's really about the things of this world, about mm. what God can give him. And Jesus constantly is calling us mm. to our hearts, to down to the very core of our being, to follow God with everything that we are. Not for what God can give us, not just for the blessings of God, but rather for God himself. David longed to know God. Saul did not.
0: Yeah. And we see that, and I love this in Psalm 51, where David himself, after sinning but going to the Lord in repentance, he says that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, a God... Oh, God, you will not despise. And in the life of Saul, we do not see a broken, contrite spirit. We see someone that's like, oh, no, I've been caught. Oh, no, I'm going to be punished. But we don't see a brokenness that leads to true repentance.
1: And how many times did God give Hmm. Saul to have that opportunity for repentance? Even after the kingdom was rent from him, he still could have bowed the knee and say, okay, I accept the consequence but Lord, forgive me. And he never did. It's an ongoing tragedy of refusing the grace of God.
0: And I think that's a warning for us today. If we were to take something from this, maybe looking at Saul's life as an example of uh, what's often been termed the slow fade, of the person who maybe there's a religious experience, but there is no true submission to Christ. And over time, there's just an evidence of a heart that is far from the Lord. Mm -hmm. And and if you are in that place, even as you're listening to this, Repent before God. Go to him. Seek his forgiveness and grace, and he will by no means turn you out. He loves to demonstrate kindness and graciousness to you. Um, But that broken spirit and that contrite heart are important and necessary. So, That's a lot to learn from Saul. Tragic figure, um, but a good example of what not to do. Absolutely. (laughs) Nathan, thanks again for another great discussion. I'm looking forward to next week when we talk about not just Saul as we continue to look at this figure, but David and how he contrasts to the brokenness of Saul. And while David had his own brokenness, God did amazing things in and through him, and he's a great uh, picture for us to to look at. So we'll be looking at that next week. Thanks again for listening. For details and more video podcast articles, visit Focused on Christ dot com.